Welcome back to another episode of the Untitled Philosophy Podcast. I am Antonio. With me, as always, is David. What's going on? It's going well enough. Um, how about you? Not so far, so good. The weather's been nice lately. That's all right. That is better. It has just been like terrible, pissing rain and the wind downtown Toronto, like in these friggin' mm-hmm. wind tunnels. It's nuts. But today looks decent. Well, just being in Toronto. Yeah, it's pretty rough. And uh, so far, if you're listening, this is just like a brief weather report. <laughs> um, I guess we're doing something a little bit different today. Uh, we're going to talk about the Olympics. And I, I guess the main question we're trying to answer is, should Tokyo or the IOC um, just not have the Olympics this year, right? Either postpone it indefinitely or postpone it until next year, which would mess everything up or just cancel it like we've done a couple times for for various global emergencies um so i guess the first thing is the ioc in japan are gung-ho on this right um they they postponed it since last year but they are very much gung-ho for it and the ioc has uh posted a couple of letters on their online um on on their webpage, and if you go there it's it's very much um, like you can read into it and it's just them obviously they're going to promote their own self and self-interest but they do mm-hmm. it in this kind of veiled way so uh, this is taken directly from their website the decision was taken and this is decision to keep the olympics going this year the decision was taken based on the main considerations and in line with the principles established by the ioc executive board um Basically, there's three main reasons why. What, well, three main like kind of commitments they have. They're going to protect the health of athletes and everyone involved and support the uh, containment of the COVID virus. And they're doing so pretty much solely based on um, what the WHO is saying about these kind of sporting events and gatherings. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the specific details of the percentages. There's actually a, a PDF file, not a PDF, um, an Excel file I downloaded and I started reading it. And I couldn't make too much sense of it, um, but if someone <laughs> if if someone is interested in it, I uh, you can find it online. It's super easy. You just go onto the Who's website. Um, they're going to safeguard the interests of athletes um, and the Olympic sport, which is basically the same as the first. So, point one and point two are the same. Point three is this is going to keep the global international sports calendar in check. So I guess there's qualifiers and other events that take place within these four years right yeah world Um, cups and things like that to qualify yeah i i'm showing my ignorance about uh the olympics so i get right off the bat i don't care for the olympics um (laughs) i have nothing discounted (laughs) we just found out that you're biased and we can discount you completely i have nothing i have nothing against the olympics i'm also not i'm not the demographic they want i i don't um i don't enjoy watching it it's just something that skims over my head at best i like watching um men's and women's hockey in in the winter olympics and that is only if there's enough people with me watching it otherwise i'm not watching this <laughs> you just find out the olympics happen three weeks later i mean yes pretty much um this isn't to say that like oh i don't care if it happens i understand there's huge economic benefits social benefits right i mean this brings people together it's a, an interesting event but it's something that you know, whatever i'm it, it loses its allure to me so if it sounds like man antonio really hates the olympics i don't i just don't care 
passive disinterest rather than active dislike. <laughs> yeah, 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 a passive disinterest. I, I actively avoid it, um, but I will grit my teeth and watch some of it if need be, if the people around me are watching it. Um, I won't even start talking about how I think a lot of those sports aren't actually sports, but probably shouldn't. That's that's on me. Um, the the IOC president has also said that um, basically humanity. This is a quote: "Humankind currently finds itself in a dark tunnel." No shit. Uh, and these Olympics, these Olympic Games, Tokyo 2020, can be the light at the end of this tunnel. Can we just talk about the shit in the dark tunnel there for a second? That was fantastic. <laughs> But anyway, back to the back to the IOC. So they're they're really promoting the games as some kind of a, like a, a social healing device, right? Like using mm-hmm. sports as as a power to bring the nations together, and it is a, a massive. I mean, we've talked about this on podcasts before. It's a symbol, right? And yeah. having this symbol get snuffed out by COVID is a really dark symbol, I guess. Yeah. For sure, um, you hear um, you hear things like. Uh, that this will be that galvanizing force, right? This will start the, the one quote that I found was this will start a post COVID era. Mm. If this, if this goes off successfully, we can feel like we're past COVID. It's a fresh start. The Olympics happened. The world is once again on track. Yeah. We're going to dive. Screw it. Let's dive into that one right now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that one is the overarching theme though. We have so much in that. I know. I mean, factually inaccurate. Um, to the point of absurdity, we are not in a post-COVID world. Um, as, yeah. as, as we currently speak, India is basically, their healthcare system is just crippled, um, yeah. dying. Um, Japan, we're going to talk about more specifically, but they're, they're seemingly ignoring um, COVID for the most part. It's like at this point, I think this week on Monday or Tuesday, they had less than 1% of their population vaccinated. Yeah, the stat that I found was that there's 1% that's received their first dose, 0.4% that's received both doses, and all of the people that received any doses are part of the medical field. Yeah, so that is a shocking number, right? And um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I mean, you're, you're living in a world where you are still very far away from getting off of COVID or getting away from COVID. <laughs> for, for sure. When you look at, you, you pointed out India, Right, and India has vaccinated somewhere like over a hundred thousand people, or over a hundred million people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll see if I can find that stat in my paper, but definitely over a hundred million. Whereas Japan's vaccinated somewhere in the neighborhood of one million people, and India's system is falling apart. Yep. I mean, I'm, there, there's definitely. I, I don't know the Indian. Um, I don't know India's like healthcare system inside out. So. That, it, it's clearly not just a one-to-one thing here, right? They're very different, but that's fine. But we could still say like, right, we have parts of the world where roughly a billion people are in deep danger. Um, and this yeah. this thing really hasn't taken hold still in places like, I, I'm worried of it hitting like the developing countries in Africa. Um, Ooh, yes. Because that's going to be scary because the healthcare system there basically doesn't exist in most of those nations. Right. Or if it does there, exist, it's really weak. There are a couple of countries where you might be okay, and then there are a bunch of countries that not so much. Yeah. Um, the IOC and, and their president, I have, I have some more specific, um, I guess, what, what they think of as being the positive impacts of COVID. And again, this is just taken directly from um, 
the IOC's uh, website in, in public letters. So you can, you can fact check this if you like or go to it. Um, maybe I'll put the, the link to some of their pages in the description below. Um, but when I'm reading it, one of my, I guess, global concerns is that they really are thinking that COVID is just a thing in the past. Like now that we have the vaccine, we'll be able to push forward and it's no longer a problem. Almost like mm -hmm. we're done with COVID. Let's not worry about it as much anymore. And that's alarming because like we live in Ontario and we're, we're in our third or fourth or ninth lockdown, um, <laughs> right? Canada's not doing that well. The States are certainly getting vaccinated faster than us, but their, their numbers are still really high. Japan's numbers are high. India, UK variants, Brazil just has given up. Um. <laughs> yeah, and you're, and you're looking at a lot of straw polls, right, that they've put out. People are not getting their second vaccine. You know, the one mm. that actually confers a decent amount of immunity. Yeah. When people respond, they're just like, yeah, I missed the appointment. That's fine. I feel protected with my one shot. You, you don't know science and you don't know your immune system. And, you know, the system's set up for you to get these two shots. But you're just sort of you know, waving it away, probably didn't call and cancel that appointment. So your dose is just in the garbage now. Yeah. I've, I've heard reports about that too, where, where uh, the clinics are calling people on the day to be like, are you, are you coming in? And some, some of them do once they've been kind of prompted, yeah. but um, yeah, there's, a, there's more of an idea that after the, after your first dose that you're fine. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I have friends who were, who were convinced like after the first dose, like we can start hanging out and doing something. No, no, you can't. Right first, I mean, wait at least two weeks before you even consider yourself of have, having that first dose, because it takes about two weeks to be effective. Yeah. And then after that, really, that first dose is just to make sure you don't die. Yeah. I mean, it might help a little bit. It's, I think, statistically, it'll lower your possibility of transmitting it to others, which is fine. But um, you're still not that protected. Like, you still have to be, it's, it's going to be a while before you're, you're protected. Right. So, and you talk about, they're, they're talking about the lockdown measures and saying that they want at least 75% of the people, I don't know if this is in Canada or Ontario, but 75% of the people first dose or 30% of the people, 25% of the people, both doses. Yeah. And that's even a steep hill to climb because the flu shot is something like 30% of the population gets the flu shot. Yeah. And that's something that people aren't concerned about it being tested rigorously. It's like, yeah, it's been around for 40 years. I'm reasonably sure that the flu shot isn't going to cause me spontaneous death or cancer. Whereas there's a definite subset of the population that's concerned that this is experimental, even though they've been working on MNRA vaccines for the last 10 years. I know, and I don't know how to talk. I mean, we're, we're getting off track well, a bit. That, but but it's, it's <laughs> right. background information, right? It's important yes. information when you realize that in comparison, Japan's not very well vaccinated. Um, China and India seem to be, but that's not going to get the whole world. And the IOC is not, not mandating you have to be vaccinated to come. They're encouraging and they're hoping that people get vaccinated in their home countries before they show up. Yeah. But they're not mandating that you be vaccinated to attend the Olympics. And we're going to talk a little bit about paternalistic measures, obviously, but that might be something that I would suggest to Japan try and push. Um, mm -hmm. obviously economic numbers are important and you don't want to stop people from traveling, but at the same time, do you really want people traveling into your country during a pandemic when you already don't have the, you know, the population that has been vaccinated, you don't have that built in support. Mm -hmm. Um, do you really want those people coming? 
and I mean, further to the point, as as other nations, do you want your um, you know citizens traveling abroad during this pandemic to a country that has a population that has a, a less than one percent, roughly, uh, of people vaccinated? Like, I I really don't want that. No, I, think I found those numbers. It's 1.1 million of 126 million people have been vaccinated in Japan, have at least received the first dose. Statistically relevant? Yeah. And they're not, they're not all, they're also not mandating that the volunteers or any of the people that are serving at the Olympic Games get vaccinated either. There was one person who was a volunteer there who was quoted as saying, um, we're going to be given one small bottle of hand sanitizer and two masks each. That's insane. They're also going to be given a wellness journal to track how they feel, but they're not part of the mandatory track and trace that the athletes will be. It's fairly rigorous for the athletes. I mean, they're supposed to have two negative COVID tests before they board the plane to come to Japan. Hmm. They have to have one when they arrive, three days, then they have to quarantine in a, their, their hotel for three days, then have another negative test before they can come to the Olympic Village. Yeah. And they're also, I don't know if they're going to mandate it, but they also want them to use track tracker apps so that they can do a track and trace if somebody does come down positive yeah but again this protects maybe the athletes who would be un potentially unvaccinated but they're more or less shying away from handling the volunteers yeah and that's that that's insane i, I did not I, I didn't know too much about the specifics on on the athletes coming in um but i had heard a little bit about how they're not really they're not spending too much time and energy on those volunteers which mm -hmm. is shocking right i mean that's putting all the the, the, the IOC is showing you who their money makers are and really what's important to them, right? Well, as, long as, as long as so, the athletes are able to perform, we're good. Yes, the athletes aren't allowed to use public transit, but pretty much everybody that comes into the game as a volunteer has to use public transit. It's, it's, it seems like a perfect storm for these little bits of disaster that happen. Um, I mean, we have the, the closest comparison I think that we have to a decent system would be like what the NHL did in the bubble. And they had, you know, very few cases in the bubble last year. And this year, every team has had, uh, you know, some kind of COVID scare at some point. Um, yeah. The, the most recent one was Vancouver almost had to cancel their season because they had 19 players sick. Like, they didn't play for a month. They're still playing like they're mostly sick. Well, that, we can, that's a, that's a topic of how Vancouver is very underperforming this year. Well, they're playing like they have long COVID or at least one or two of them do. <laughs> yeah. A, a couple of, I think uh, Quentin Hughes mentioned it as well. And he's, he's been like suffering with it. Um, there's been a couple others. For sure. Um, but I mean, you, you can imagine a case like that, right? These variants are just way more contagious. And you, you can imagine that spreading, right? Even if you've done the, the tracking, you now might have 12, 13 athletes whatever right pick random number arbitrary number if you want <laughs> um that can't compete or that shouldn't compete yeah which dilutes and kind of goes around the whole point of having the game as being this you know thing of sports and blah 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 and then half of them can't compete or a couple of them can't compete and that's gonna that's gonna take away from i think one viewership interest and then i mean that sucks for the athlete who spent whatever amount of years in their life working for this moment. And then they got COVID through, you know, whoever. Yeah. And there's, there's two parts to that. There's the fact that there's always going to be this asterisk next to this Olympics in the same way that there's probably going to be the asterisk for this Stanley cup. And maybe even the last one, 
where it's did you were you the best or really were you the most healthy at the time yeah there's there's a sense that anybody anybody that doesn't perform well can be like yeah i ended up testing positive for covid like right after the event and i definitely didn't perform at my best what do you say to that i mean yeah it's pretty it's it's a possibility yeah i i, I don't it, i don't know what you say to that right like that's a that's a weird it's this is a, new, a unique thing and I, I don't know i don't know what we do with that um historically we, t we tend to do a lot of hand waving i'll throw an answer to my own question out there are you, that's, I mean, that's what i was doing with my stumbling around is me i'm waving my hands for those who are who are <laughs> listening on the podcast only basically just shrugging going i don't know yeah, well, the same. You had the same problem when we we're in the midst of the Cold War. Wasn't there one Olympics that the Russians just didn't compete? The USSR didn't compete as an entity. Yeah, I think and so. the US just won all of the medals, and they've just been cheering about their performance in that Olympic since. Yeah, not to say that the United States isn't a dominant entity in the Olympics now, but there was a there was a time when it was just like, wow, we won all these medals because our major competitor wasn't here. But nobody really looks at that historically, I don't think. I think we just look at the Olympic Games and medal counts and source of national pride and away we go. So yeah. in 20 years, yeah, if, if, half the, if half the US team was wiped out with COVID and Germany won a bunch of medals, we, we probably, you know, Germany would definitely hold that as a site of pride. Yeah. And the US just wouldn't talk about it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. We, uh, from a, a, a microcosm perspective, you just look at sports teams that win championships every year. Um, where so Toronto won the NBA championship two years ago now, and pretty much believe they won it because the Golden State Warriors were so injured. But it doesn't take away from the fact that you won it, right? You you play the games yeah. that you play, you face the people that are are healthy and that you're playing against, right? Um, yeah, in a couple of years, we won't even remember that it was you know, probably because the competition was so weak. We'll say it was the COVID Olympics, but we won't say exactly <laughs> how that cashed out in any meaningful way. Yeah. Um, so IOC President Thomas Back, I think it's Back. I like these German names. Um, he gave a couple of more specifics around you know, social and economic impacts about why we should continue with this game. Um, mm. The overarching theme is that it's a celebration um, of this festival of unity for humankind. And it's a symbol of human resistance to overcome this coronavirus crisis. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with the sentiment, but I'm not on board with the practice yet, just from some of the stuff we've been talking about. And I think yeah. the further we dive into this, the, the more I'll be off of that point. Um, but I still appreciate that symbols have a huge impact on people especially yeah. a, a mental health impact right now seeing some kind of normalcy i think can be healing to some even though it's it's it, what is soothing to the soul but it's not gonna do anything for the body <laughs> and i think that's unfortunately that seems to be less true with every passing year there was a time when the olympics were the event right national tv would just be focused on the olympics yeah. And we don't have that kind of national focus or national pride in it as, as we used to, or as we seem to when you look, look back at the history of the Olympics. Now there's just too much to keep our attention. Netflix is still a thing. It has lots of things to watch. You said yourself, you're not really interested in watching the Olympics in any meaningful capacity unless it's hockey. Yeah. But there's definitely this sense that maybe, maybe the Olympics will raise some people's spirits. But there's definitely a generation of people that are like, eh, the Olympics. 
What's up with the Kardashians? What's up with my hockey team? What's, you know, what, what am I doing at work? Am I going to go for a walk this weekend? Yeah, I think part of what makes the Olympics so uniquely special is that idea of kind of amateur athletes. Forget about all the times where professional athletes are constantly playing. We will ignore that part for now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think that's its greatest hindrance in, in a more modern generation, where if we can't build relationships with these athletes it's really hard to really care about someone with a 30 second like vignette about the hardships they had before a race yeah right it only maybe it makes us root for them for a couple seconds but i'm not going to know their names um we really only know the like you know like the hussein bolts because he became a celebrity in a sense right um if uh, otherwise we wouldn't really care like i couldn't tell you who who came in second or third i couldn't tell you who there's a, a canadian competitor and i have no idea who he is even though i, I know his face and i, I want to say his name but i'm like no that's not his name that's someone else <laughs> right but I, you I think mean, there's only one canadian going to the olympics this year there so i, I guess i should be more specific there, there's a canadian um i guess sprinter who's 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 fairly good and he was mm. he and usain had like a, a relationship i completely forget his name but it doesn't matter well actually it does matter the fact that i can't remember his name also means i don't care enough to even care to find his name nor i'm going to watch it um so yeah i I think you're 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 right some of this is going to be healing for some and then others this (laughs) the kardashian generation which i guess is me now too because i'd rather do most anything else than watch the olympics um they're not going to problem the summer the last summer olympics because i was hearing it on the radio the olympics are coming the olympics are coming and before i knew it it was the final day of the olympics i was like i didn't even know that they were here yet I just kept hearing that they're coming commercials and then because of school, because of work, because of life obligations and because of just me watching the stories and shows that I usually watch, I'm just, Oh, I missed it. I missed all of the Olympics somehow, two weeks of sport, (laughs) you know, national pride and national unity. And I'm very careful not to universalize my own experience, but if it's happening to me and it sounds like it might be happening to you, there must be some other people. And given the concerns that we've, we have now of, class inequality and the lockdowns and the effect of racism and racial injustice and issues with the police, people are more engaged in those issues than in setting their differences aside necessarily and saying, let's all come together as Canadians when they're busy trying to say, well, no, we need to fix some of these essential problems in the Canadian system or the American system. So that call to unity isn't as effective because it sounds like a dog whistle to some people now. It's that idea that, you know, after those after the school shootings in the United States, we don't talk about gun violence now because it just tears us apart. Now is the time for unity. Doing something about it is for kicking the can down the road. Mm. And I think people are becoming desensitized to that. When you say to someone who's being disenfranchised, just put your issues aside and let's cheer for Canada. Like, well, no, Canada's been oppressing me for generations. <laughs> Why am I cheering for Canada now? Whereas it was a lot easier to, to wave that away and to push it under the rug. People were more willing to say, yes, Canada first, because they'd probably grown up in a generation where there was a world war or their grandparents were in, in a world war. They had that sense of, yeah, sometimes we do have to come together for the greater good. Yeah. And we haven't had that kind of galvanizing event in Canada in probably since 9-11 was, might have been a communal feeling of, of, wow, the world is smaller than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. But we also weren't right into the Afghanistan. We weren't right into the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. So what was the last galvanizing event in Canada? The FLQ crisis in the 70s, maybe? 
And that was Canada against Canada too. Yeah. Well, I guess one of the, um, maybe I don't know, the shooting in Nova Scotia last year was pretty galvanizing. I mean, yeah. that, no, I don't think to the same extent, but definitely I remembered it. Like I was, when they, when the year anniversary came up, I was pretty shocked that it was only a year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, there was, you're, you're right. I, I didn't, I didn't think of that idea of kind of, you know, that national unity is, as hiding some of these underlying issues. Um, it's another way of kicking the can down the road or, or just ignoring things for now. And I think my mind was very focused on this, on the COVID crisis still, where having this is a nice distraction, but also it's probably a bad distraction um, <laughs> because there's still a lot of serious problems that we have to address. So um, IOC president um, talked about social impacts of the sport. So you know, sport and physical activity, great contribution to health. Yes, except yeah. they're the ones who are, you know, doing the sports, we're the ones sitting at home watching it in lockdown. So I don't see how those two exactly mesh together. <laughs> um, don't you jump out of your seat when somebody scores or wins a race? No, not even a little bit. You might accomplish five <laughs> jumping jacks over the course of the two week at games. <laughs> I don't like jumping jacks. Um, there's a clear economic Im uh, impact. I think this is probably their, their best one, right? It, it's going to bring in a lot of money. Ideally, I don't know what it's going to be like right now with COVID. Um, yeah. Japan's already, well, I know they've already lost money because they postponed it for a year, which will, they'll yeah. never get back. And that was, that was brought up. And one of the reasons why they shouldn't cancel or postpone it is they've already paid in a lot, right? Like it, what sunk cost or something like that at this point. Yes. So there's economic impact. Um, and then the political impact, which is something that you kind of just touched on a little bit there. Um, I'll, I'll use, I'll say a quote from them, at least in some parts of the world, we may see more nationalism, more protectionism, and as a result, more political confrontation, U.S., um, just throwing yeah. that out there. Here are Olympic values of solidarity, peace, respect for each other, and for the global rules of sport need to be emphasized. Yeah. Okay. By living in and strengthening solidarity, we can show that respectful international cooperation produces better and fairer results than isolation. Sure. Yeah. We're all coming together to, um, you know, participate in these games but someone is going to come out as a winner so it's cooperation but there's definitely going to be a winner and a loser and you don't want to be the loser <laughs> um not if national pride's on the line no <laughs> and i don't see how it just i mean i guess i'm not i don't see the connection between let's say you know an american sprinter and a russian sprinter and a chinese sprinter all in the same race as showing some kind of national unity or cooperation i, I just this this might just be me like right i think i am missing the essential spirit of the olympics mm -hmm. um and if i am then i'm just i'm just talking to talk but <sighs> fine right i mean having all these nations come together that some of them might be having you know side political issues like sidebar problems sure but i don't know i, I don't see the, the huge i don't i don't right now i mean like this year in yeah. 2021 the year of our lord covid i think a better sign of international unity would be sharing vaccines not running or skipping or archery yeah i think we, we might be downplaying the, the unity a little bit there is a sense that people do put aside throughout history it's been you know after the world wars germany came to the olympics after the Cold War, the Russians and the United States competed. It might have been a heated rivalry, 
but there was a sense that, yeah, we can coexist on the same ice or on the same field or on the same track. And that's a, an important symbol. Okay, I'll grant but, that. But that's a precarious symbol, right? All you need is for, for one track star to come down with COVID and infect five or six other people. And then all of a sudden it's that athlete from America or that athlete from India brought COVID with them. Yeah. And now they're a problem. So there's that's that symbol that symbol can go either way real quick, and and you know that's that's going to happen, right? Like one at least one person is going to either bring it in or come into contact and get COVID in these Olympics. It, it is unless they're going to create a real bubble like you saw in um, professional sports, it's going to happen. Yeah, it, it's very like very very likely given yeah it, everything it, that we're seeing. It seems like it seems like that it seems like an inevitability, and that in and of itself doesn't bother me. It's just I want to the the precautions around it seem a little bit flimsy. So you said the testing around um, the athletes seems pretty rigorous. I think that's pretty good. I think they even have to leave like 20, 48 hours after their event. Like they cannot stay as well, which is yeah, they can't good. Stay yeah. Um, but you know, the, the fans who are watching and the individuals who are helping administer and run this thing do not have to go through those same stringent tests. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, that's probably where it's going to creep in too, right? It's going to creep in through a volunteer or through, they're not allowing international spectators. Yeah. I don't know how strict they're going to be with that. I don't know if you have to have a Japanese passport to spectate right now. They're just saying no international spectators, Yeah, but they are allowing somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, the, I've seen different numbers, but between 60,000 and 90,000 people through either volunteers or media or coaches and, and other people associated with the athletes that aren't inherently the athletes. Yeah. And at some point they're going to have that cutoff line of, Hey, you're a coach of a coach or you're the, the assistant to a coach. We're not going to track and trace you as rigorously as we're going to track and trace the runners or the people competing in the games and wherever that hard cutoff line is, that's where things tend to seep in, right? It's it's not going to be the whole boat that capsizes. It's going to be the the weak spot. Japan has some very strange laws overall about even who can give vaccines out. You have to be like a doctor or a nurse. Um, yeah. So even the people that can administer it are very you know, selective. Like it's you have to. I guess you have to get a doctor to give you the vaccine, and then you give them the vaccine if you're a doctor as well, and then eventually pour it down. So it's a weird system. Um, also, Japan. This seems to, this might be my own kind of internal process of what's going on. And um, this leads to some talk, this conversations around paternalism. But Japan, as, as a government, seems to be less inclined to impose um, overarching restrictions on, its, on, on, on everyone. Um, yeah. They've been really pushing this idea of, you know, the individual governors and like the, the different parts of Japan, how it's broken down. You guys are the ones in charge of it. Um, so different emergency lockdown measures weren't brought in and the government seems to really not want to do it almost not exactly passing the blame, but I think there is a little bit of a worry in that kind of a, just like Germany has some worries about totalitarian style laws or, or, or rules, Japan should. And I think also has this feel where if you start imposing yeah. things from the top down, it very much looks like what they had before the constitution after world war ii and i think people have an initial fear of that right it, it doesn't look good yeah there's been no national lockdown they've been very gentle with their population there's been a couple of like 
very targeted safety measures and states of emergency. Yeah. Uh, they've also, um, they also waited two months after the U.S. approved the vaccines for emergency use because, in part, they were trying to avoid fears of it being rushed and untested. Mm-hmm. So they did, they did drag their feet a little bit, maybe for the, maybe for the benefit, maybe it improved public uh, perception of the vaccine or not. I, we, we won't know that until they get really rolling with the vaccinations, but they did yeah. wait an extra two months so that they could show their people that they were being more rigorous than some of the other countries that said, okay, emergency use go. Yeah. And that's an interesting it's an interesting way of doing it, right? Because hopefully you get more people on board, but within that two month period, they didn't set up the proper kind of precautionary measures of, you know, um, they were really focused on business hours rather than closures. So you still had people working, going to stores, eating out, blah, 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 within that two month period that you could have at least put a little bit of a, you know, a a more firmer hand on that. And, and, and you, right. Like, there, there is that tension there. It's one to be like, it's one thing to say, yeah, that's really nice that you're, you're stopping it for a bit and you're, you're showing everybody that this is, you know, we're, we're kind of doing our own little rigorous testing on it, checks and balances. Yeah. But within that time, let's make sure these constraints are a bit harsher. So the numbers don't go crazy, but the numbers went crazy. And there's a lot of, from what I'm looking at in the news, there's a lot of blame game back and forth where the governors are blaming, you know, the centralized government and the centralized government is saying, well, the governor should have been doing this because we don't want to have a state of emergency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Like that, that's a, that seems like a political failing, but also I think maybe there's some justification for why they don't want to impose these laws. Yeah. And there's, there's that notion of, of distrust for bringing back the emperor, we'll say, but <laughs> there's also this, the rivalry that Japan's always had with China because China did offer to, donate 100 million doses of vaccine hmm. to Japan to, to facilitate the, the Olympic Games. And their response was, well, there's no Chinese manufactured vaccine that's been approved for use in Japan right now. So, no. And, and that goes to another point that somebody had made, that there's this heated sense of rivalry between Japan and China. I mean, they've hmm. basically been at war for more than 2,000 years, we'll say. Yeah. Over certain parts of the, so there's this sense that the next the next Olympics after this one is Beijing. <laughs> so there there's this notion that if if Japan can't get it done and China does, in the background there is this like oh the rivalry is still going. We need to get this Olympics and we need to get it going now because if we don't, China is going to beat us to the punch. And then it might be 20 years before we get another Olympic Games. Yeah, and that that seems like a st- right. I mean. The Olympics are about bringing everybody together and working on a global stage in the background. Well, f that guy. No, we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> plow through this just so that China doesn't look better than us. And I, I can I can appreciate that because even, all these countries are on the world stage. It's not just about cooperation. It's also about showing off. It's about yeah. you know national pride. There's there's a reason why we have the the gold medal counts at the end of it, and some nations do very very well. It's a source of pride and having the olympics is a massive source of pride because it's a ton of money a ton of years of work on this yes not only right. money coming back to japan who's put out uh i mean the conservative estimates 25 billion dollars it's a lot it is <laughs> it's a lot yeah and to but to jump back just a little bit that that notion of the japanese chinese rivalry that wasn't just me throwing that out there that was a quote from um 
Koichi Nakano. I don't know if I'm pronouncing, I'm probably not pronouncing that name properly, but he's a Japanese political expert with the Associated Press. Yeah, I, I, I can see that being probably right. <laughs> <laughs> it's intuitive, it, it sounded intuitively true, but there's a political expert here that I'm all leaning, leaning on yeah, to yeah. pull that home. No, that, that's always a good, uh, it's always good. Um, so let's, let's move into some more, I guess, specific philosophical questions, because we, we've, we've touched on, I think, a lot of this, but we've done a lot of the background research, right? Um, Before we do that, can I hijack us back to a couple of points? Of course. As to the, the, the one of the, the financials, because I did mention finances again, one of the big financial pulls for the, the IOC is that they use the money that they generate from selling the broadcast rights and holding the Olympic Games to fund a lot of national Olympic communities, committees, mm. who then you know distribute the money across different countries. And part of the, the one concern that they keep pulling in is that if you don't have that revenue stream, they might have to start cutting back funding to the national Olympic communities, uh, committees. Yeah. And if they cut their funding a little bit, it tends to be women's sports and Paralympic sports that get cut first yeah so there's a sense that they might actually be doing it long term for the benefit of women in sport and then the paralympics now to yeah, the counterpoint to that is dick pound the former ioc head has said that they've been funding them and haven't broken down the funding haven't reduced funding since last year anyway and they yeah. can probably do it again for another year or two before they actually have to start seriously considering tightening the purse strings Okay. But that would be in time. That would be just before the Beijing Olympics. So who knows how that would cash out? That is so, that's interesting because I wanted to talk about uh, the Rio Olympics a little bit later on um, with the Zika virus. And one of the, one of the reasons why the IOC did not stop those Olympics or postpone it was because they, they specifically said, well, you know, the danger really is only to a select group of people who happen to be women who were pregnant um so it posed no real threat generally or globally and there's other things we can talk about there so it it's it, it's interesting to hear the arguments saying that well we're doing this so we can protect you know the women's games um and the paralympics and then four years ago well we're going to do this even though women are the ones who are going to be at the most risk i was like okay well there's a little bit of a little problem there i can see a little tension again i like that word tension <laughs> yeah yeah there, there's definitely a difference between you know any woman who competes in sport and pregnant women who are at the olympic games yeah you would there's a little bit more personal responsibility with the rio games where it's well if i'm pregnant and i know the zika issue is a concern for me maybe i don't travel to the united states because they're probably not competing in the games if they're pregnant that that might be one of the you know fundamental facts about competing in the games you're probably not pregnant at the time you're probably not pregnant, but it wasn't just pregnant women. It was in the women who, who were hoping to get pregnant yes. as well, right? Yes. The, there was neurological and kind of potential defects that happened. Um, Absolutely. And it also brought up, I mean, it, it brought up different points about women's health in general and uh, like specifically in Brazil of what was going on. But it, it was it was a more targeted group of people that were at risk. Yes. Um it's just, I, we, we do it all the time. It's, it's a criticism, but it's a criticism I think I can put it most places, right? They're, they're talking in the two corners of their mouth by saying we, we're trying to protect the women's game, but also we're not protecting this specific you know, subset of women. We don't um, want to protect women, we don't want to protect individual women. We want to protect women as a group. Yes, except if you're pregnant. That, that's, that's, right. a sub, that's a subgroup that doesn't count. 
Um, but we can we can talk more about the the in, about the Zika virus thing because it was interesting to see how they handled an epidemic versus this pandemic. Mm. Um, and there's been we have there was like a Harvard Law Review I was reading. Um, many many people were saying that we should have just canceled the Rio Games, um, given the like just given how bad that was, the potential dangers, and then exponentially worse with COVID. Yeah. <laughs> um, we allowed okay. some pretty despicable things to happen in the name of the Olympics. Like there were all kinds of reports coming out of Rio that they were just demolishing whole communities and murdering stray dogs or pet dog or any dogs that they saw really around the Olympic venues <laughs> to try and keep up the pretense of, of Rio as a very modern city that doesn't have problems with poverty or stray animals. Yeah, the, the, the massive and favelas. And, and I'm sure that that wasn't just the Rio Olympics. It's just likely that they're South American, so they're so close to the United States that they get a lot more attention than, say, the Beijing Games, where the same thing could be happening, but we're not going to have the same media attention. Rio got a lot of attention because of the Zika virus, too. It did. But st still, we should it recognize did. that the Olympics are not really the inherently pure bastion of sport that we'd like to believe. They're billion-dollar sporting events that further inequality and disenfranchise the, the people that lived in these communities. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, Zinka was a, was, a, was, a, was a virus that, that very much affected the poorer areas of Brazil. Um, if you were a tourist coming in, you probably would not even see a mosquito uh, based on like the proper hotels you were in, right? The mosquito nets. Um, it was mostly people up in, in, the, in the more rural areas in like the favelas um, that were having this issue. Um, chances of you getting sick, probably pretty low, um, but chances of Brazilians getting sick in those areas, very high. And yeah. maybe displacing or putting some money into stopping that versus having the Olympics or putting all that money into the Olympics, right? Where you put your money matters. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, we've, we've mentioned this, but just kind of the harm principle. Um, like broad stroke harm principle, right? So if you don't know the harm principle, basically says um, people should be free to act however they like so far as their actions don't cause like direct harm to someone else. I think that's Mill's very general version of it, right? Well, the Simpsons, the freedom to swing your, or basically Lisa swinging her arm is, I'm going to keep <laughs> swinging my arms like this. And if you could hit, it's your own fault. Once you've hit somebody, it's everyone's fault. Yeah, that's right. It was Bart who swings their arms. Lisa, I think, yeah, kicks. Kick, it's kicking. <laughs> it's the Thank you for the kicks. correct. I appreciate that. <laughs> it is important. I'm just going to swing my arms, and if you get in the way, it's your own damn fault. Um, Our principal would not like that. It's not. It's not your own fault. Once you make that contact, you're the you're the problem. So the, the harm principle gets you. We can use this in, in sport. We use it in sports all the time, right? Especially contact sports like um, MMA fighters. They're punching each other in the face they're knocking each other out. Uh, we let them do this because they're, they understand the assumption of risk there. I guess we can really get into more, what do you understand of the assumption of risk? That might be too deep. I scowl at you subtly that no one will pick up on on the audio, audio <laughs> podcast. That idea, yes. Yeah. No, I mean, you know about CTE, are they yeah. really giving informed consent? Yeah, yeah, I, I am. I am completely on board with that, right? Um, we, the NHL has lawsuits still about CT and how they weren't telling them enough about this, and we're we're learning more and more. Um, yeah. Shit, look at professional wrestling, which we've been talking about more now. There's a lot of people in professional wrestling who have died, um, who have yeah. things like concussion problems, who end their career early. Uh, you know, guys like Chris Benoit who killed himself and murdered his family. 
and he also had CTE and probably relations there, right? Yeah, his brain when they when they did the brain scans, his brain was so badly damaged they they were kind of shocked that he was still alive. Yeah. So we're not talking about that. We're we're talking about this idea of I guess you know contracting or transmitting COVID, which yeah. is not the same as CT, but it or CTE, but it's definitely an assumed risk. And I think at this point, I think I want to default to say they understand the risks better than people who understand concussions because we've lived with COVID now for a year and a bit. We understand the ultimate risk is death. Um, yeah. So we allow these athletes to perform, you know, in physical sports. Um, and look, I guess the main question here is a very broad stroke question, but like, you know, should, I guess there's three, right? The, the IOC clearly wants these athletes to perform. Japan clearly wants these athletes there to perform. Um, so you can have two questions there about, you know, should they be allowing for this? And I think maybe the more interesting question, because they don't have the same vested interest, is should other nations be allowing their their athletes to go perform? Mm -hmm. um, given the assumption of risk um, and given the fact that they don't have the same stake that Japan and the IOC has specifically in this, because I understand yeah. that is going to weigh your, uh, your moral calculus very differently. Sure. We can't yeah. discount how some of those, so, some of the smaller countries, the United States is a great example of a big country that benefits, but they funnel millions and millions of dollars into even individual athletes that they expect to send to those games. And if you're an, if you're an Olympic athlete, you've got maybe two Olympics where you were at peak condition, physical condition. Yeah. And maybe one more, if you were right in the sweet spot, maybe one more where you could contend if everything went your way, but you're probably not winning a medal. Unless you're in like a team sport. I, we, we've had yeah. like women hockey players who are in their late thirties who are still dominating. Yeah. Um, not just because it's a team sport because they were very, very good. Yes. But yeah, you know, even for, I, like, again, I watch men's and women hockey, but even professional men's hockey players who go there because the team does not have any amateurs on it. Um, they're in their mid thirties. And that's kind of the kick, the last kick of the can because just the four year period, not because they're that old because they're still yeah. better than probably any amateur at 40. Yager, he's what 43 or 46 right now and he just helped his team win the, the championship yeah so i thought he was older than that i just he saw that news be, report too. 100 years old I, I swear he's either like late 40s or early 50s that man I guess is we ageless could, could look it up but yeah he 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 took his team that he now owns uh from That's the second right. division to the first division and he's yeah. he's centered by thomas bukanich who's also in his late 30s i'm that's a name I haven't heard of in a long time. There yeah. you go. He played for, he, he, he was my Canadian for the longest time. Then he played for Toronto for a couple games when they traded him. Um, so. Yager is 49 this 49. Year. Okay, there it's, you go. That's, and he's an still, answer. he had 11, no, 12 points in like 20 something games, something like that. It's still really good. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess the, the general question here, and we're, it's harder to answer this, is like, should we be allowing these athletes to go? And the answer I don't think is a clear black and white, right? Just as you mentioned with how much money the U.S. funnels into it, these smaller nations who probably put more money per capita into the, the few athletes that they have. Yeah. Um, and I guess while I don't have a particular answer, I do find it interesting that a lot of the reasons why we should let these athletes go is the fact that just how much money we put into them. 
Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem like a great counter to the potential health risks that these athletes might face. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's, yeah, if we're just looking at it purely from, you know, the country has given you lots of money, you are now our product. (laughs) But there's also a sense where these athletes are using their own bodies as their product. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you're a, if you're an Olympic gymnast, your, your peak physical condition is till you're like mid twenties and you're probably retiring with bad joints and you, you're really bad joints and hips and back and all kinds of other health problems from doing all the tumbling and all of the events. Yeah. The idea though, is if you win that Olympic medal, you can get the endorsement with Wheaties and then you're set for life. You might not make a lot of money going to the Olympics, but if you win a medal, when you go home, you are definitely a national hero. Or if you come back to the United States or Canada, you are going to get endorsement deals that will coast you through. So your body might not be in great shape, but you will never have to worry about money again unless you have some sort of addiction problem or some other issue that prevents you from saving that money. Yeah. And I mean, there's also, you've been training, we mentioned this, you mentioned it earlier to me, right? You've been training for years for this thing. It's it's a huge culmination uh, yeah. being on that world stage. So, you know, denying them that is a problem. It could be problematic at least, and it's tough to do. Um, I guess where I want to poke at more is there's certainly like, if we're looking at the harm principle from a very basic perspective, mm-hmm. you may be harming way more than just you, right? Yeah. You, you could be harming a ton of people by doing this. And while we might say, sure, anytime you can catch this kind of communicable disease, you might be harming a lot, but we can take it back again and say, well, what has Japan and the IOC really done to protect these athletes? Have they really done enough for them to make I guess what we'd say is like an informed decision, mm-hmm. right? Because certainly we allow people to harm themselves all the time. We don't ban cigarettes. <laughs> we don't ban alcohol, right? Uh, depending on where you are, you can do certain drugs in the world. We, we allow you to destroy your own body if need be um, to degrees, as long as you're educated enough in the decision you're making. So I don't know, honestly, if Japan has done enough. Um, I don't think we have... I guess, like the research on the numbers for this yet, right? So we have American um, teams that are allowing, you know, 50%, 25%, depending on the state to come back in to arenas, but I, they're, they're not tracking those people to see if they've cont- like, you know, have COVID days later. That's not something that they're interested in. Um, that kind of statistical information, I think would definitely make the IOC's decision um, more cemented in my mind, if they had those numbers, but how are you going to get those numbers, right? I'm asking them to do the impossible. I'm asking them to do the impossible. Um, yeah. So they're damned if they do, damned if they don't on that one. In the case of the individual athletes, I think the I think they're doing a great job for individual athletes. If mm. I were an athlete in peak physical condition, maybe I'm not so concerned about COVID anyway. There's a smaller chance that I'm going to have long COVID or I might die. So maybe I'm thinking I've got my health is really good. But now you've also got four tests before you can leave your apartment. You're probably getting tested daily, if not twice a day, to confirm that you have not contracted this disease. And when you get home, you can self-isolate for 14 days, and you're probably going to be fine. There's enough infrastructure for the individual athletes that the concern is probably next to nothing. But it's the coaches and the assistants and the spectators and the people that need to man the food carts. Those are the people that are going to be disenfranchised by this, because if they get sick, they're not going to know that they're sick until days later when they've already spread it to several people and they're going to be a greater risk of dying because they might not be in peak physical condition and they're certainly not going to have the medical staff with them to treat them if they are sick if you are 
uh, if you're a poor volunteer at the Olympics, chances are you don't have the, the best access to medicine money can buy. No, you have two masks and a bottle of hand sanitizer. That's right. But if you were an athlete that has millions of dollars invested in you, you probably have your own team of doctors who will quickly get you on whatever antivirals you need to be on, monitor your health and vitals, get you home where you're safe, and make sure you don't come in contact with anybody that you could hurt. I guess that, yeah, I guess that might add another question or another layer to the moral calculus that these athletes have to make is do you want to be that much of a cost and that might like you you are you might be fine and protected but think of the cost that you might accrue by getting sick and i don't just mean cost and money cost in man hours right the, the 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 person who's taking tickets will they get sick because enough people came to watch you run or what have you right like it adds a little bit to the moral calculus um, I don't know how much it changes it. I think it's very much dependent on the individual. I don't think there's a strict answer to this. It's not utilitarian math, or at least we don't want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't do that math anyway. Um, but there, there's a lot, there's a bunch of layers, there's layers of questions here. And a lot of it does come down to the individuals who are performing, because I don't think nations want to take too much of a paternalistic leap and start denying um their athletes from going to these countries or from going to Japan. I mean, I think if, if, if it was in India right now, or if it, if it was Rio 2020, we wouldn't be having these Olympics. I, I think the fact that it's in Japan changes the, um, the decision-making process to this. Is that true? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't think that's a contentious thing to say. No. And Japan's numbers aren't that bad. They've got 500,000 cases, but only 9,000 deaths. So yeah. in terms of in terms of how they're handling the pandemic, not a lot of people are dying, but that's one of the big question marks about this this virus. We don't know how many of those people are getting long COVID, where they're sick for months, if not years, afterwards. Mm-hmm. And there was there were some reports out of the states that they were finding that two out of three people were having symptoms months later. So that's that's a big question. If there's only not if nine thousand dead is still a, a big number, we don't want nine thousand people to die of anything. No. In, in a year. But if there's 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 people that are still short of breath and suffering from brain fog and are having a hard time living their life in a meaningful way, that does change the calculus because you don't want that many people to lose a, a, a meaningful life because of a sporting event. Yeah, very much, right? That, it's, it's one small event that can lead to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people having a poor quality of life for a very long time. We have no idea what the, the long-term side effects of, of, of these kind of long haulers with COVID are. That's also true. Um, so another like brief little, num- I like putting numbers up every once in a while, but the BBC had a, a, a mentioned this in Japan that about 70% of the Japanese population does not want the Olympics right now. Um, mm-hmm. does not want them specifically because of COVID related concerns, right? Not, yeah. not because of me. Who's like, Hey, do you want the Olympics in Toronto? No, I don't want that. The traffic annoys the hell out of me. <laughs> it's because of this COVID fear and fears can be justified or not, but that's, that's a fairly large number of your, of your home host nation who does not want this. Yes. Who, and it is being imposed on very much. Right. So yeah there's always that two sides of coins for paternalism right it's we're not going to impose these laws on you but we're also now going to impose this public health potential crisis on you or at least public health debate um because this is this is just in the end this is just a potential public health disaster right 
is this going to make Japan worse? We don't know. Yeah, well, that's the, the big concern, right? If, if right. this is, turns into a massive super spreader event, and anyone who's ever played Plague Incorporated, that game where you try and destroy humanity by creating the, the ideal virus or pathogen, yeah, yeah. One of the best things that happens early in the game is they hold the Olympics, and you get like a 20,000 uh, infected boost, and then everyone, or at least four or five countries, then get infected when people go home. Yeah. It's one of the quickest ways to start the game with a lot of points so you can make yourself really deadly. It's one of those ideal situations <laughs> if you're a virus. Yeah, and this this seems like an ideal situation. I mean, so I guess look at it from a, a different, I guess, a more general perspective. If it wasn't for the Olympic Games, would we want to send the ninety thousand, sixty thousand, whatever that number is of extra people to Japan right now? Hmm. I think the answer is just a resounding no. We would. Would Japan that. want that many people just coming in for tourism right now? Probably also no. Yeah. So something about the Olympics is outweighing it. And I don't think the Olympics has done a great job in explaining why it should be outweighing it, right? There, mm -hmm. a, a lot of their stuff is focused on the spirit of the games and this healing aspect. And I haven't heard, I haven't seen or heard anything about how this is going to heal rather than just seeing nations cooperating, jumping over poles. Mm -hmm. if it, uh, if it, it, it sounds well. like the jackass me saying, because I don't like <laughs> the Olympics, right? Oh. I think at the end of the day, if this does go well, if they hold the Olympic Games, there's no super spreader event. Very few people end up infected after the event and everything is a resounding success. There is a sense that we might say, okay, we can definitely beat this thing. We, there's nothing bad happened. But you know, if the best you can hope for is nothing catastrophically bad happened, that yeah. might not be the best justification. Yeah, and I don't, I'm, why not wait and try on the smaller scales first? Like the professional sports leagues are slowly letting, depending on what state you're in, slowly letting people into the stands, right? We have no people yeah. in stands in Canada, but like Boston just put it to 25. I think Florida has, Florida is like 50, but it's Florida. It's the Wild, it's the wild West, West there. They do whatever <laughs> they want. <laughs> yeah, at the same time. We both time. say it at the same time. You <laughs> it's know the wild it's true. West. We should have a whole podcast on Florida. Just America's glory hole. We could um, just have a whole podcast on man in Florida and then finding the news articles. And that is right. Um, so like the, the numbers are still going up in those places, right? Numbers of testing, number of people testing positive, number of vaccinations. Yeah. We have no idea the correlation between these people going to events, which is like 15,000, maybe 10,000 versus whatever is going to happen in Japan. Yeah. So yeah, if the best case scenario is that nothing catastrophic happens. Was it really worth having the Olympics? It, I mean, it, do people even have the desire to watch it? it? We can tell by like Japan, their population doesn't have a desire to have it. I don't yeah. know how many Canadians at home are just gearing up for the Olympics. They just want to go outside. Right? <laughs> I mean, like we have it's, so... It's true. I'd rather <laughs> play golf than watch the Olympics. Yeah, I would rather watch you play golf and just drink in the golf cart next to you. <laughs> You could grab the then, golf cart. I would let you. Then I, I would then watch anything in the Olympics. So I, I guess I want the IOC to give me better reasoning. Yeah. Um, because I mean, this is this is quite literally a public health concern, right? And anytime you have that much of a massive gathering, it's always a public health kind of petri dish of oh, let's hopefully nothing happens with this. Yeah. But in the case of you have an ongoing pandemic that is by no means under control. If you say it's under control, you are delusional because it is not. 
um, at all under control. <laughs> no. Uh, and that's not to say that there's a silver lining and the, there's there's hope at the end of the tunnel. There clearly is, right? Mass yeah. vaccination programs, like who knows within a year if we can get back to have some level of normalcy. Um, but even then, the idea of having all those hundreds of thousands of people flock into a country seems like it probably will never happen again. It just, I mean, that's a separate... So Beijing 2020, what, 2024? Oof, Lord. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about uh, what happened in Rio. Um I want to hijack you first. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to phrase that if you had something that you wanted to finish. Oh, I always have something to say. <laughs> uh, the the one place we're getting a lot of these numbers is an article from the Associated Press. Uh, best to not hold Olymp uh, hold Olympics. Medical experts say citing considerable risks, and the they're leaning really heavily on. Um, let's see, doctor again pronunciation. I am sorry, uh, Norio Sugaya an infectious disease expert out of uh, Kiyu Hospital in Yokohama. Hmm. And this person has a hundred and, again, we were talking about the last podcast about vetting your sources. So I looked into some of this person's publications and 137 publications, most of them dealing with the effectiveness of influenza vaccines, strategies of how to improve the effectiveness of vaccines, how effective they were in staggered usage, the different kinds of usage that they've employed in Japan hmm. in both children, adults, and the elderly how to prevent hospitalizations during pandemics, again, focusing on Japan, and uh, the flu mortality rates and treatments and the H1N1 crisis. So this person basically spends their life studying these kinds of things. Yeah. And their recommendation is, yeah, you should probably postpone it. Um, they're, they're not, their magic number is, again, like that 75% of people vaccinated, at least in some capacity. Yeah. The concern for us will always be that it's the people that are volunteering. It's the disenfranchised already. It's the people that aren't really affluent that might be near the games that are going to be affected. Yeah. But they and but they include all, all these numbers here, right? 15,400 Olympic and Paralympic athletes, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 90,000 90, people expected to enter Japan from abroad. About 30,000 of those people are going to be uh, Olympic and Paralympic coaches, staff, and officials. So there's a considerable number of people that are coming into Japan and based on the person who studied how pandemics operate and how to properly treat them, their recommendation again is postpone or, or hold off. So there is a sense that it's not just us philosophically speaking, there are medical experts who were like, yeah, this is a concern because we do only have, you know, a couple hundred thousand people vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, the likelihood of a spreading event is, is big. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's it's not just philosophical principles here, right? There's there's solid scientific principles here, um, and the reason why I, I keep bringing up um, Rio is that there was an overwhelming kind of push by the scientific community to 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 postpone this thing and to stop it. Um, so Rio at best was an epidemic, right? Yeah. Um, not a pandemic, just happening in Brazil and several. I think it was like thirty six other countries or something like that. What was the number? I have it here written down. Uh, Zinka virus circulated almost 60 countries globally, um, 39 countries alone in the Americas. So it was very much a South American problem, um, which again, probably tells you why we still had it because it was just a South American poor person problem, but that's me becoming cynical. Um, so um, there's this um, Harvard Public Health Review of 2016, um, Army, um, a TRAN, um, it's faculty of medicine, faculty of law at University of Ottawa. And he, he kind of breaks down 
five reasons basically why the Rio game should have been postponed. And I can transport those reasons onto Japan because these reasons are, are very much around the idea of, okay, this is a, an epidemic. How do we stop it from getting to a pandemic? Are we going to make things worse? And are we basically harming the individuals within this host country by having it there? And I think it checks on pretty much all of them. Yeah. Um, so he says, uh, leads to a bit, this is taken a, uh, as a quote, leads to a bit of truth. 2016 Paralympic Games and Olympic Games must be postponed, moved, or both as precautionary concession. Uh, five reasons. First is that Rio de Janeiro, the place where they had it, uh, was affected by Zinka more than anyone had expected. So mm -hmm. rendering early assumptions of the safety basically obsolete because the whole thing around it was now we don't have the clear case. We don't understand exactly what's going on anymore. How do I transfer this to the Japanese model? We've never had, it's been that long since we've had 90,000 people coming to these kinds of events for whatever reason. We, yeah. we don't know how that's going to cash out if anything will happen or if something horrible is going to happen. Um, second, although Zinka was discovered uh, nearly 70 years ago, the virus strain recently entered Brazil. It's clearly new, it's different, and it's more dangerous than the old strain. <laughs> How we talk about this? We have lots of different strains of COVID-19 going on. Um, I don't know what's going to happen when you have more people mixing with different mutations with these strains or bringing in different strains into Japan that may not be prevalent there yet. Um, yeah. Again, I don't know what the testing is going to be like for all the individuals coming in, and you don't know what's going to happen with the internal population getting those volunteers sick as well with whatever strains they might have. So we have, we have a lot making... of evidence about SARS-CoV viruses, but not this particular SARS-CoV virus. Yeah, we're, we're basically making a martini here, making a dirty martini. We're asking everyone kind of to drink it and hoping for the best. It, mm -hmm. some, nothing might happen, right? This podcast could be null and mute within six months. Um, we left ourselves a nice little buffer there. If nothing goes wrong, like I said, it will be a very positive event. Yeah. But of course, we're doing a couple of other things during the podcast, and we'll do the brackets now. It's We are accepting that the medical community is being honest about how deadly and dangerous COVID-19 is. We're taking that for granted. We're not going to have another conversation about the possibility that the the PRC tests are, are rated too high and not as many people have COVID. We're just going to take take into account what people are agreeing on the medical community agrees to yeah there there's general consensus there if you've uh, watched our, our podcast recently on you know fake news and misinformation some of you might think general consensus well that must mean that they're wrong or if you're you know logical it means that we probably have picked up on something that's correct <laughs> um the third while brazil's zinca inevitability is going to spread globally that was their their idea here given enough yeah. time viruses always do sure um, it helps nobody to speed it up. All it takes is one infected traveler to make this Zinka virus become more of a global pandemic. We're already in a pandemic, but we can certainly make it worse by having, um, by having different variants spread or having someone who is infected go into an area where there is little to no infection. It's going, it, the, the inevitability is going to make it worse. There's some other true things about this kind of pandemic, right? There, there are uh, have been comparisons to things like Ebola that's significantly more deadly than COVID-19. But the difference between that and even the SARS, um, the, the SARS upper respiratory issue that happened in Toronto. Hmm. Uh, I don't know how long, I can't remember how long ago that was. I was still in high school. SARS I was in high school too. <laughs> yeah. So those were, they were both metastasized faster 
the the period between catching it and showing symptoms was, is like hours to days with both of those issues. Hmm. So if the question would be, you know, can we hold it in uh, any country where Ebola outbreaks tend to happen? The answer would probably be, yeah, because the time from infection to symptoms is very short. And yep. we can we can quarantine those people. That's why those outbreaks tend to be one small village that's days away from the nearest medical facility where it's a yep. problem. And SARS was so virulent and the symptoms happened so quickly that we were able to contain it. Right? We don't talk about that variant of SARS anymore because those people got sick, ended up in the hospital. It was deadlier. Yeah. From I'm sick to I'm in the hospital happened so quickly that we could contract trace the two people that were in contact with you in yeah. a meaningful capacity and get those people to the hospital right away. Yeah, it was much easier to trace. Uh, my, my godmother was working at, at Western at the point at that time, and she was freaked out. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, we, it, we got it under control a lot faster because of just how virulent that those symptoms were. Um, I want to quickly push through this, this fourth and fifth one. Um, so the fourth, when... If not, the game speed the Zinka virus spread. Again, we're talking about Zinka still. The already urgent job of uh, intervening new technologies to stop it becomes even harder. We have a hard enough time pumping out the vaccines we need now for the variants that we already have. Um, even if no new variants pop up, because I'm no you know, epidemiologist major here, I don't know how long it takes for a mutation to pop up, but mutations seem to happen at any given time where a virus would transmit to some new host because it can mutate based on the new host's uh, DNA and, and so forth. Um, but the idea of just getting more people potentially infected here and not having the vaccines to push them out is a problem. And specifically for Japan, who seemingly is not really trying to vaccinate yet or is very, very slow, right? Well and steady. Uh, that's a problem if you start getting more people sick. Look at how look at how it happened in India. They're manufacturing, I think, the Moderna vaccine there, but they can't keep up with themselves and they have other global commitments. So they're, they're in that yeah. much trouble despite having access to a facility in, in the country. Yeah. And, and this is just going to seemingly make Japan at least put in, put into a vulnerable position to be way worse off. Um, the fifth proceeding with the uh, proceeding with the games violates what the Olympics stands for. The international Olympic committee writes that, Quote, Olympicism seeks to create social responsibility and respect for universal fundamental ethical principles, end quote. But how socially responsible or ethical is it to spread disease? Mm -hmm. That's, he leaves that as a hanging question. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a heavy question because, yeah. it, right? It, look at the Zinka virus pandemic. And it turned out that really no one got it. Like, yeah, like it was very, very rare because of the type of illness it was, right? You had, um, you had mosquitoes as the vector and those mosquitoes usually, uh, those mosquitoes were in different places. You can block out those vectors with, uh, you know, mosquito nets. Uh, you had uh, hotels, which were basically protected little bubbles, but those vectors lived in the poorer communities and those poorer communities got ravaged by this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you go to any of those like all-inclusive hotels, like in the Dominican Republic, they just have trucks that come by and spray pesticide every couple of hours to make sure that there's never a mosquito anywhere near the resorts. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, this is this is an important question to ask, right? Same with now. Uh, same with the the COVID virus. How socially responsible is it or ethical for us to be spreading this disease? Because it, it's it's a, a willing assumption of of risk here, right? You are assuming the risk might happen. You're assuming that with these best practices, it will still happen. 
And it's not like COVID is something like a cold or a flu. We know it can kill you. It, it has long haul effects on young individuals. There's, um, I think I mentioned Quentin Hughes. He's like 21. Guy said he could barely walk or breathe. Yeah. And so he's, a, he's a peak a physical condition. Yeah. He's a peak physical athlete. Maybe, no, he's not even 21. He's like 19. He's really young. Uh, and you have other athletes on that team who, were, who got hit super hard by it too. Um, I think it was a basketball player this week who said he was just happy to be alive after he had COVID. Like that was just the baseline of like, I'm glad I'm not dead. That, so, right. Like, I mean, the, the games are, is saying, you know, there's an assumption of risk here, but it seems to violate some of the basic ethical responsibilities that the Olympics themselves sets out. And Unlike the Zinka virus, which we mentioned, which is very much, you know, uh, the problem is for these pregnant women or or women who are going to try and get pregnant because of the neurological problems. It also showed a really dark side of Brazil's lack of a medical care system for the poor uh, and specifically women's health. But now you have that exponentially worse with COVID, which attacks everybody. It, It clearly attacks everybody, but it's also very hard in those low hitting population communities of like, low-income housing so you can imagine certain you can imagine delegations getting sick and bringing that back which was my worry about like when this thing finally really takes root in some of the poorer countries like in africa that is terrifying and i I know that that sounds like oh are you just saying that they don't have the healthcare system because like they really don't they just don't they don't have the infrastructure right they're they're developing countries we have the infrastructure and we're barely we call it global south now sure Global South, PC it up. I don't care. <laughs> but we have the infrastructure here and it's falling apart or getting close to it. They don't. Just yeah. Statistically, they don't. And they all it takes is... media attention, right? I mean, if it happened in Brazil during the Olympics, the media would have flocked in there and it would have been an issue and they would have probably done something about it at the time. When it gets yeah. into those poor Global South countries, we don't really get a lot of that news. There isn't really a lot of international news reporting on things like Ebola outbreaks. Yeah. In the Congo, we don't we don't hear that because unfortunately, the affluent West doesn't tend to care about that kind of thing. Yeah, very much. It, it doesn't make for hot, sexy news. Right. So for all we know, there could be tens of thousands of people dying. We would never find out about it because it wouldn't make headlines. Yeah, India, the- it does, because that's a it's a very populous country It's surrounded by other reasonably developed countries. There's a sense that India is sort of like the the example right we look at we look at india we look at china big populations places where people are concerned about health and safety and because they develop really quickly yeah right and when things develop really quickly areas get really well served but the global community not so much or the surrounding neighborhoods not so much yes yeah because you're putting your time and infrastructure into that the, the specific locations well look at even even in ontario as an example when the provincial government started making all those healthcare cuts. So I'm, I'm in Fort Erie and the closest cities to me, Fort Erie, Niagara Falls, St. Catharines, Welland, and Port Colburn. Port Colburn Hospital closed, Fort Erie Hospital closed. Niagara is still operating as a hospital. Welland is sort of operating as a hospital, but we lost at least three hospitals in that area. Yeah. And that's, and that's in an, an affluent community in Southern Ontario, which was like the breadbasket of Ontario production with all the automotive stuff. Mm-hmm. So you can only imagine what it's like when you get out of the central cities in India, where they might have had the infrastructure because they there are operating industry, they are doing a lot of a lot of you know tech 
work. Those areas might be very well served, but India is very big for how for how underserved a lot of those people will be. Yes. Yeah. I'm worried, I'm worried if something <laughs> bad happens to me and I'm 30 minutes away from a hospital. Imagine if you're a day's travel away from a hospital. I know. And there, there's, there's, you, you hear them on the news talking about traveling for hours just to pick up oxygen now for your father or your brother or sister. And you can imagine if this virus gets into nations that are worse off than India, who have much, who, <laughs> there probably isn't that many hospitals, or it's like UN style run hospitals, which are probably the best places to go. That's mm. a problem. And that's, we're not going to hear too much about it because it's not, it's not that sexy country, right? We, we don't hear very much about, I know it sounds like a weird thing to say, but the news is very much giving you the, those, the things that you, that they want you to care about or think you're going to care about. And yeah, we don't even sensationalize the, the problems going on in South America. We don't hear much about Venezuela, Argentina, the countries that are having healthcare issues with this virus yeah. and we're precarious economies anyway. Yeah. Oh, I mean, well, we, every once in a while I read up on Brazil because I have family that's there and, and they've just basically, the, the president just refuses to believe that, that this pandemic is real, that COVID is real. He calls it a flu. He doesn't wear masks. He's a super spreader of events. Anytime he goes out, yeah. uh, he doesn't want to impose lockdowns because freedom and sure your freedoms, but also, you know, general public health, right? Making sure your population doesn't die. Like what, what are your freedoms worth if you're dead or if you, if you're physically so ill afterwards for, for months that you can't even act on those freedoms, yeah, um, for sure. So, I mean, this, this is a deep question, right? I don't know. I honestly don't know what the answer is. And I, I don't want to broad stroke say postpone the Olympics. If I'm taking the, the strict public health approach, I probably do say postpone the Olympics, if not cancel it. But if I take the approach of whatever national agency, even an individual athlete, I might say have it, but maybe have stricter restrictions. Um, even then, I don't know what those restrictions look like. Right. right. It, the Olympics runs on volunteers. There are going to be at least twice as many volunteers at the Olympic Games as there are athletes and athlete entourages. Yeah, it, this, it's a tough it's a tough question to ask. And it was in one of the comments to, to, to do this. And I thought it was really interesting because there's so it's a multifaceted problem that I don't think has an easy solution unless you kind of make arbitrary distinctions on which point you're coming from. Right. If you're going to take the healthcare or health public health perspective, I think the answer is easy. If you're going to take the perspective of like the IOC and promoting this kind of, you know, humanitarian human blah blah blah, the answer is easy too. You take perspective from each individual nation by sending your own people there, then it becomes different and very you know diluted throughout. Right, like, yeah. um, you know, we were stopping flights from India coming into Canada, but we're okay with sending our athletes to Japan, which has all these problems as well and potential further problems. Is that really good? Right. I, I can see myself saying no to that saying, why are we doing this? Why would we open up the possibility of this kind of very dangerous and deadly can of worms mm -hmm. for if the end, if the end result is not that valuable. And maybe that's why I have an easy time saying it because the end result of the Olympics to me isn't valuable, but I'm not an Olympian. So where do you, I gave, I gave you my spiel on kind of, I don't have a particular stand. I think I'm much more on the, I think I am on the side of, we should probably just postpone this thing for, mm -hmm. for, for various health reasons. Um, what about you? At the end of the day, it seems like the only argument is something like this. Um, marketing plus other income streams produced by the Olympics, $5.7 billion US 
That was both for the 2014 Winter Games and for the 2016 Summer Games. And uh, $7.75 billion right to advertising for the Olympics through 2032. That seems to be that seems to be it, right? That seems to be the big argument in favor of having the Olympics. Yeah. And if you're not sympathetic to the economy of it, and if you're not sympathetic to, and I have a, I have a deep sympathy for some of these athletes, the, the athletes that held on for one more Olympics to try and win that gold, and they know that four years from now, it's just not going to happen for them. Yeah. I, I would like to see it postponed because the economic argument doesn't really hold sway with me. I have a hard time justifying, we might kill, you know, we might kill tens of thousands of people, but think of the money involved. That argument falls flat. For some people, it probably doesn't, right? When you're talking about billions of dollars for an economy, <laughs> that's a that's a big incentive to follow through on bad ideas. Yeah. But if, I, I don't see why they couldn't push it back a year and push back the Beijing Olympics a year. I, I don't, and I'm sure there's lots of logistics but Japan's already sunk the money in, right? They've already built the infrastructure. They've already trained their volunteers. They have all of it ready to go and they're ready yeah. to go very soon. How much of that would fall apart if we did it in 2022 and then held the summer games in 2024? For the individual athletes that lose out on competing, I, 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 I feel for them. I do on a deep, deep level because I can imagine the disappointment of these four years have been my life yeah. and it's being taken away from me. But that's 15,000 people. That's maybe a couple of 15,000 people, as opposed to how many people might lose their livelihood if this turns into a super spreader event. Yeah, I mean, COVID has taken away so much from people already. I mean, as much as these athletes have trained for these four years, this is their life goal. You have people that have lost their jobs and they've spent yeah. years in their jobs. You have people who've lost loved ones. You have this generation of kids now who have been home online schooled for the last like, year and a bit who are losing out schooled in scare quotes there yeah <laughs> you're right they, they've been losing out on a lot right like yes i understand that athletes might be losing out here but we've all lost something to, to various degrees some people have lost a lot so having people that as their being, lives yeah I, like have is, having that idea certainly adds to my moral calculus but it doesn't weigh that much right you not being able to compete in this olympics and win a gold you know, Joe outside the street has lost his job and his like grandmother. Mm -hmm. What's worse? I think it's probably Joe, right? Someone's dead. You, you certainly like, wasted again, quotes here, some of your time with these last four years, that was a part of your life, but COVID takes a lot mm -hmm. and it, it's going to take a lot to justify you having that opportunity. Um, we didn't talk about it, but there's also a potential worry of just bringing in resentment towards these athletes and to the games. If something goes wrong, even if yeah. something goes right, there might be resentment. Like I, when I watch American hockey games, I'm still a little bit kind of confused and even borderline disgusted at how many people are in the crowds. Mm -hmm. Like we're not through this yet. Why are you there? Like why are teams allowing this to happen? The answer is always economics. We need money. We want yeah. more money how much is each human life worth? Right? I think I would be more comforted. Scale, probably not much, which is why we're also replaceable as employees. <laughs> but morally, we should, we would hope that we would prize existence over non-existence in some meaningful way. Yeah. 
I mean, I think I think that's a decent place to end this. It's it's a hanging conversation, and if someone you know, if if you're listening and and you can give us a very good reason why we should have it that doesn't really revolve around this economics or the idea that you know these athletes have really tried hard and this is something important to them, I would love to know. Um, I don't think the IOC has an answer. I think they're violating some of their own principles about you know fairness, equality, and basically spreading illness around the world especially to those the communities they're going to get hard as hit yeah um well, we need to ask if that uh, that what uh 5.7 7.7 so just over 12 billion dollars if that couldn't have been better spent putting in place mental health care for people that have been that have lost their jobs you know subsidize them to stay home and gotten through this thing faster yep. look into vaccine development I, I'm sympathetic to the people that would say freedom first and the primary freedom we have is bodily autonomy. And if it's my choice and I put the effort in to go to the Olympics and compete, then you should have the freedom to do that. Just like the country should have the freedom to put on the Olympics. Yeah. But we've had a couple of podcasts where that freedom argument comes up against the harm principle or comes up against just basic compassion for human life. Yep. And at some point you're either saying my freedom is more important than my life. Fair. I mean, if you if you conceive of yourself as William Wallace and Braveheart, fair. Yeah. But what kind of freedom are you losing, right? I mean, he was fighting the freedom to not have the king, you know, storm into his village, rape his wife, and murder everyone he knew. Some people might say that freedom to throw a discus is at the same level, and I might not be as sympathetic. Yeah. Even though I am sympathetic to how important and how short a, that Olympic window is for people. Yeah, it's a super, it's a, it's a tough thing, right? These athletes have a very limited window of what they're doing. They've dedicated their life to it. They've given up a lot of other opportunities and that's all their choice along the way. But at some point, you know, your, your choice is going to, at least in this case, come up against public health concerns and people dying. And it's not just, you know, it's not a one for one. It's not, you get someone sick and then they die or they get sick, but everything else is fine. It's they get someone and then they get someone and it keeps going on and on. There's a cost to it. Um, and I don't know if Japan and the IOC have done enough to try and li- like limit or mitigate that cost yet. I just no. And that I might be another. Di- there's another question right there about how we care for our athletes. Right? There's a sense that nationally we care for them very well if they're winners, but for the people that don't win medals, that don't place, we don't take care of them very well. There are jobs yes. in coaching for some of those Olympic athletes, and they might have a reasonable quality of life afterwards. But there are stories about Olympic athletes, even in Canada and the U.S., that have come back had no money, didn't get endorsement deals, and they end up teaching maybe PE if they're lucky. Yeah. And, and that's a different question, right? We sh- that shouldn't be the option, either compete at the Olympics and win a medal or borderline poverty. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's bad when it's affluent West, but it's even worse when it's some other countries that barely have the money to put together an Olympic program because yeah. they're not going back to riches and wealth. They're probably going back to coaching or nothing. You're right. And this is, this is another, there's another factor that we add into it, right? You mentioned this earlier, we talked about kind of the, the disenfranchisement of some of these athletes that, that, that go through the international system or the national system. And maybe we need to start fixing that, right? Like this is another, this might be one of those other points that COVID is doing, or that's highlighting some of the inequalities and inconsistencies that we have, mm-hmm. that if this is all that these athletes have, it's either this or nothing, then maybe we need to start asking why. Because it yeah. can't just be that, right? It can't, you, it your, your life, be. yeah, it ought not to be. If, if you've missed, if you lose by 
three of a fraction of a second, that's it? Like that's your life? That, wow, <laughs> that's tough. Um, well, this has been another episode of the Untitled Philosophy Podcast. We went a little long on this one, but this one was a really good talk. Um, we'll see how it edits out. We'll see. David, thanks again. Thank you for having me. And we'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you for listening.